This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hey, everybody. Uh, just a, a quick note. Um, this podcast, uh, the full podcast, was actually recorded a while ago in anticipation of this case on affirmative action, in anticipation on uh, the overturning of affirmative action, which uh, in universities, uh, and it was like Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and there was another UNC case. And um, so I had a discussion with Renu Mukherjee of the Manhattan Institute, and uh, I'll have all her like affiliations and everything in the you know, after this prologue is done. But um, we did plan to record a little prologue, just updating where we are. Uh, the case kind of went, I think, the way we were expecting. So the conversation should be fine. But Renu, can you tell us, um, you know, what's going on and if there were any surprises or if everything was in total line with what you were expecting? So this decision is exciting because it does overturn 45 years worth of court-approved racial preferences in higher education. But at the same time, it is exactly what we expected, which is that the six more so conservative-leaning justices voted to strike down Harvard and the University of North Carolina's race-conscious admissions policies for both violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And then the three more left-leaning justices uh, obviously dissented in this case. So it's exciting because it, you know, strikes a blow to a major public policy in the United States. But at the same time, it is, you know, what we thought was going to happen. All right. So I do have to say... um... It is exciting to you. <laughs> this <laughs> is uh, horrible and a disaster for some people. Yes. So, so some people are very, very uh, shocked and outraged. Other people are very excited. And then I, you know, know of other people uh, who say that this isn't going to make a a big impact because the universities just go around it. And doesn't it still say you can kind of take race into account? Maybe I don't know. I, I'm hearing different things from people. So tell me, tell me what's wrong and what's right. Sure. So this is definitely largely symbolic, but there is a portion of Chief Justice John Roberts who wrote the majority opinion. He does have uh, some language in his opinion overturning this policy, allegedly, that schools could still consider race in the form of, for example, an application essay. So, so long. So this is where during the oral arguments, the justices differentiated between what they considered check the box consideration of race and then more of a holistic review sort of consideration of race. You know, how does it tie into who you are as a person? And the court has left the door open for the latter. So hypothetically schools, and they're they're, they're likely going to do this, could, you know, use application essays to kind of suss out and code for whether a student is of a particular racial group or not. So the decision in that sense is just kind of largely symbolic. Um, okay. Okay. But uh, it's a pretty big, but it's a pretty big deal. Like you seem on the excited side, you know, so people aren't, they don't see your face, but uh, you have a smile. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, it's, I mean, where are we going to go in the future? You know, we, we actually talked about some of this um, in the, the primary podcast because we kind of anticipated uh, what was going on. So let me actually just ask you, um, what is, I mean, I think 
President Biden had some reactions. I have not been following the news today. I'm not going to lie. Um, so what are the reactions? Tell me about that, because, I, you know, obviously we couldn't talk about the reactions on the primary podcast because it hadn't happened yet. Most of the reactions are sort of what you would expect that advocates of affirmative action, racial preferences think that this is going to decimate the black Latino, Native American, basically the groups that are that are described as underrepresented minorities, that this is going to do away with their populations at elite colleges and universities. Um, interestingly, not, few of those reactions have acknowledged Asian American discrimination, which the court again in its decision did that. They 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 bought into a lot of the evidence from trial showcasing that Asians you know, individuals part of whatever origin group uh, falls under that category, sort of arbitrary category, do have a harder time getting into these schools. Uh, that has not necessarily, of course, been acknowledged by people from Barack and Michelle Obama or President Biden. It's really been first that this policy helps all Black, Latino, Native American, underrepresented minority students, and two, that because it's now been struck down, those populations at these schools are going to drastically decrease. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, stupid question. Um, the, the ruling's been made. Does this change the policy now? Or, like, is there I, – because I know with um, desegregation, they gave them years. You know, they gave them decades, actually. So, I mean, I, I don't – I didn't read it. So what's going on? Like, I mean, is there a new law of the land? I, I know with the abortion stuff – with Dobbs, it seemed to have changed overnight, right? So, I mean, what's the deal with there? It seems that that will theoretically be the case with this too, that for the upcoming fall admission cycle. So just even, you know, me looking at college applications, the they have not, most have not yet released applications, essay questions. Yes, they probably won't until the end of August. So it would seem as though they have to comply with this ruling going forward. But again, like you'll probably see essay questions change. You'll prop to, you know, perhaps ask students to discuss disadvantage or discrimination. You'll see more schools dropping their standardized testing requirements. Um, so that's kind of the response we should get. And it would probably apply to the upcoming admission cycle this fall. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, we, we had a really long discussion. Uh, this it was, it was two and a half months ago, I think. You know, it was in March. Uh, actually, it was three months ago now. It was three months ago. Uh, and I think we covered a lot of the topics, like, you know, how are they preparing? What are they going to do? Okay, everything like that. Um, is there anything um, seeing this ruling? Uh, is there anything of note to you that surprised you uh, that you're going to have to look more into? Because, you know, for the listeners out there, and we'll get into all the other things you've done, but like this has been your beat for a while now. And so you know what's going on with affirmative action and universities and maybe more generally. So can you can you say anything or what surprised you or is it pretty much in line and um, you know, you were you were anticipating everything correctly? Um, I do think that this decision is largely what I expected. Um, for me, it was exciting to read because the argument that John Roberts put forth for why the policies should be struck down is simply because of like we discussed this earlier um, in our longer recording, but the whole notion of strict scrutiny, you know, like you have to have a very high 
like compelling diversity interest. And then like the way the schools achieve that interest has to be quite specific and narrowly tailored. And the bulk of his opinion focuses on how colleges and universities have not met that really high standard. So that was sort of, you know, vindicating to see that for once the courts have sort of dabbled around that line of argument for the past 45 years to finally see him say in writing, you know, no college has actually complied with this very high standard that we've instituted. And for that reason, we're striking down their affirmative action policies. So that was quite interesting to see. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think, um, you know, if you don't have anything else to say, I think that that's good enough. Um, it's, you know, from what little I saw in the headlines, it seemed like what we were expecting. So I, I hope people uh, get something out of the rest of the podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a very interesting couple of years for the Supreme yeah. Court. So, um, you know, uh, this is we, we are actually living in historical times um, in a lot of ways with with Dobbs and now this case, because it's a bit like, um, you know, a lot of the things from the 60s to the early 70s, that revolutionary period. Uh, resulted in some changes in the law, whether legislatively or through judicial fiat, uh, the end of the Warren Court. And now in the 2020s, that period is coming to an end. So the baby boomers were young then, and now they're not so young. Um, so maybe, you know, I mean, this is like a generational changeover, and um, it's really exciting. It is exciting whether you like this particular ruling or not. It should induce some excitement about the possibilities of the future and so um, with that, I think um, we'll sign off and go to the primary uh, podcast that we recorded a while ago. Thank you, Renu. Thanks. Hey, everybody. This is Razib Khan. And uh, welcome to the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. And I am here with Renu Mukherjee, who is a policy and policy analyst at the Manhattan Institute and a PhD candidate in American politics at Boston College. And her dissertation is focusing on affirmative action, which is um, – you know, it's a word I think almost everybody in the audience uh, who is American knows, and I think abroad sometimes it's called positive discrimination. There's other words for it. But um, in any case, uh, I just want to start from the beginning. Um, tell us what affirmative action is for someone who's actually doing their dissertation on this topic. Sure. So thanks for having me, Razib. Affirmative action in it, how it's used today is a system of preferential treatment on the basis of race for certain racial groups in the United States that often leads to adverse outcomes for racial groups that don't, in fact, receive that preferential treatment. So how it works today is that groups, particularly Black and Hispanic Americans that are perceived as, quote, underrepresented in higher education and in some sectors of employment, receive this preferential treatment while different Asian origin groups and white Americans don't receive that same sort of admissions um, or employment hiring tip. Well, I mean, so you named Asian groups, Asian origin groups, and obviously white Americans. Um, but I mean, can I mean, so, you know, the I know the federal government does uh, minority contracts, like is that and Asians are included in that is not not affirmative action. That is, in fact, affirmative action. And what's interesting is that affirmative action, when it was uh, the term was first used by President John F. Kennedy back in the early 1960s, and when he implemented affirmative action and it was later exacerbated by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, 
they understood affirmative action in the context of government hiring and federal contractors. So that's actually how affirmative action was originally construed and then its application in higher education came about later. Yeah, and um, I I do want to say I'm going to be we're going to be focusing on America because uh, it's a big topic. Uh, Just to be clear, these sorts of policies are actually pretty widespread across the world. There's going to be a lot of listeners in various countries um, who have experienced this sort of thing. India has, for example, massive uh, policies about this, but there's also policies in relation to higher education in Malaysia. Um, anyone who really wants to uh, read about this from a conservative perspective, um, you can read a lot of Thomas Sowell's work from the 1990s um, on his race culture. I think it's a trilogy. Um, there's affirmative action all over the place in you know many, many contexts. I mean, in Sri Lanka, they have affirmative action for Sinhalese as opposed to uh, Tamils. So um, you know, this is a general uh, policy pattern. And oh, I'll give you, I'll give you guys the weirdest one. Um, in Song Dynasty China, they actually had to have a regional cap on candidates for the uh, bureaucracy from Fujian, because otherwise they would overload the bureaucracy, and there weren't going to be enough North Chinese, um, you know, in the bureaucracy. So you know, they really cared about representation one thousand years ago. But uh, the emperor was from Northern China, so I think he, you know, had some opinions about that. Um, but so you know, when talking about affirmative action in the American context. Um, a lot of it goes back to the Baki case, and I feel like we should just like hit that case because you know it's 1978, and it's where a lot of the explicit discussion starts. And like it is actually still the reply to the Baki case is actually what's going on now in a lot of ways. So, um, can you talk about that? Sure. So Baki was a 1978 case involving the University of California at Davis Medical School. Um, And the plaintiff in that case was a white male named Alan Bakke. At the time, UC Davis Medical School had two separate admissions tracks. One was for racial minorities that were perceived as underrepresented. This included Blacks, Hispanics, uh, Native Americans, and interestingly, Asian Americans were in that underrepresented group, but it's sort of acknowledged within the uh, facts of the case that they were in fact overrepresented relative to their share of the California population at the time. And then the other admissions track were for white applicants. So Baki basically applied to UC Davis Medical School twice and was rejected both times despite having higher test scores and GPAs than some of the underrepresented minority applicants that were admitted. The case was fractured, the decision of the case was fractured, meaning there's multiple opinions. The one that gets cited the most in affirmative action debates today is not a majority opinion or a dissent, but a plurality opinion written by Justice Powell in which he established the diversity rationale. In doing so, he went through multiple different explanations that the UC Davis Medical School put forth on why they should be allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. One of those was remedying past societal discrimination against Black Americans, for example. Another one was wanting to increase the number of minority physicians in impoverished communities. Uh, And the one that he said was, in fact, constitutional was guaranteeing the benefits of a, quote, diverse student body in higher education. Um, and so the so five justices in that case said the uh, UC Davis Medical School program was unconstitutional because since there were two separate admissions tracks, it constituted a racial quota. It was easier to get in if you were a racial minority as opposed to if you were a white American. 
then then there were four justices that said we should allow discrimination of that sort because of the remedying societal discrimination argument. Baki had his own opinion. No other justice signed on to it. And this opinion was the diversity rationale that was at the time mere judicial dicta because it didn't have a majority behind it. But it was adopted by five justices in 2003's Greta versus Bollinger. Yeah, the the, the 2003... Um case i remember because uh i was reading the new york times in 2003 i guess that's the way i'm gonna say um so yeah people were talking about it um i think it was a was it sandra day o'connor um who wrote the uh did she write the write the opinion see i remember um but so um you know the diversity and so just to make it clear for the listeners and viewers um affirmative action in the united states is it's not quotas quotas are illegal they're unconstitutional correct Yes, they are. Okay. And because that's what you had um, in UC Davis. You had explicit quotas. They were just straight up about it. I think there's a few other places that were doing that too. Um, and so quotas are you have a certain percentage and you target that. These are well known in the United States from the Jewish quotas of the first half of the 20th century, usually capped at around uh, 10%. Otherwise, um, you know, they were going up to like 20, 25% Jewish, right? Um, so that's illegal. But. Uh, affirmative action, um, um, you know, race can be one of the many um, qualities or whatever. I don't know what you want to say. Characteristics, right? That's the term you want to use um, that you use to evaluate someone. And so from what I know, it's supposed to be kind of a tiebreaker as well. Yes, it's supposed to. And what's interesting is since in, in recent years, the notes of justice Powell's law clerk have been released. And you can see in the scribbles of those notes and the back and forth between the clerk and Justice Powell that they acknowledged his diversity diversity rationale was a compromise between the four justices that said considering race in any way in admissions decisions was unconstitutional in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And the four justices that, in fact, wanted overt quota racial discrimination to remedy societal discrimination. So even in his correspondence with his law clerk, when they were writing this opinion, they made very clear that the diversity rationale of using race as just one factor among many and evaluating candidates was sort of a happy medium. Yeah. So um, you mentioned the equal protection clause and, you know, that has to do with a constitutional amendment in the 19th century and you know, again, I have to say, I think for non-Americans, <laughs> this focus on like the you know history and the genealogy of the laws and the cases and the decisions probably is like okay, like what's going on here? But this is how we do things in the United States. Uh, could you talk really quickly about this? Uh, you know, uh, in the nineteenth century, equal protection. You know, how it's kind of a shadow over all these other things. Sure. So the equal protection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment essentially guarantees equal protection and non-discrimination on the basis of race, class, national origin, etc. for all groups in the United States. These are called, in legal terms, protected characteristics. The reason it's interesting in the context of affirmative action is that affirmative action does in fact confer benefits on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, seemingly in violation of this constitutional provision. Uh, and that and that's why it's confusing. And most of the cases you'll see from Baki through Baki, Grutter, Fisher 1 and 2, and where we are today with the students for fair admissions cases, is that what the justices have done over time and the lower courts as well is 
try to sort of tease and, and sort of play around with the diversity rationale so as to not violate this constitutional provision and also Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which I'll, I'll add that the Equal Protection Clause prohibits racial discrimination in the context of higher education from public universities. Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of uh, race, ethnicity, national origin from private universities that are received receiving federal funding. Um, so yeah, those are two different situations. So uh, so legally, at least like currently now, uh, affirmative action is not discrimination. Is that what you're saying? Yes, in the eyes, who knows what the justices will do? They're currently, based on past legal decisions, affirmative action justified through the diversity rationale, the courts have said does not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and it also does not violate Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. So um, I, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the Harvard case um, and students for fair admission. Uh, we are recording in March of 2023. Uh, some of you are going to be listening and watching after the case is uh, determined. And, um, you know, the expectation uh, is that uh, affirmative action will be no more, you know. Um, and so um just just for you guys out there, uh, we will talk later on about what the consequences are. And we're just going to assume it's a fait accompli at this point because, um, you know, something could happen. But, um, you know, I'll just I'll just remove this podcast. Then. <laughs> <laughs> like, obviously, the simulation broke. We're in an alternate universe and uh, Alito got woke. I don't know. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, if that does happen, um, there's something, you know, Biden decided to, you know, pack the court with 20 justices. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there are things that could happen. But right now, um, the probability is it's going to get overturned. And so I'm trying to give you guys a sense of the historical context of where we are right now and like how we got here. Um, because, you know, a lot of people, honestly, a lot of people, I think, do think um, quotas are legal. And that's how affirmative action works. And there's this whole diversity rationale, which I kind of find a little bit tortured. I think a lot of people find a little bit tortured and confused because what is diversity? Um, you know, uh, you can use Shannon's information index and stuff like that, right? There's all sorts of ways you can measure diversity in statistics, but um, it seems like, you know, from a legal perspective, it's just some sort of like weird verbal uh, assertion, and then you know it when you see it. Um, can you talk about the Students for Fair Admission case and Harvard? I mean, this is something that I think most of the listeners will have like tendentially heard about. Hear, heard about, but um, let's let's dig into the details of what's going on here. Sure. So, Students for Fair Admissions filed the lawsuit against Harvard all the way back in November of 2014. The claim, the primary claim that they've made in that lawsuit and what's received the most widespread media attention is that Harvard's use of the diversity rationale to justify affirmative action in effect penalizes Asian American applicants in a way that it does not white Hispan does not penalize whites, Hispanics, or black applicants. But there are other claims that students for fair admissions have made in that case as well. Uh, one has to do with 
the con with the le this um, legal principle called strict scrutiny. It's a standard of review. So in the U.S., when the courts evaluate different cases, they use either rational basis, which is the lowest level of judicial review, meaning that it's it's quite easy for a law to pass that um, and to be deemed constitutional. Then you have intermediate scrutiny. Most cases that are evaluated under inter intermediate scrutiny are cases of gender discrimination, for example. Gender isn't a protect protected class, but it kind of comes close. And then you have strict scrutiny, which is reserved for infringements largely on the due to race, ethnicity, national origin, etc. It's extremely hard for a law that discriminates on the basis of race to pass strict scrutiny. To do so, you need a compelling governmental interest and you need to ensure that the means are narrowly tailored, meaning they're specific to achieving that interest. This other major claim Students for Fair Admissions makes is that Harvard's racial preference policy does not satisfy the standard of review. So you have discrimination against Asians, you have strict scrutiny fails, and then another large claim that they've made is that Harvard has been racially balancing its entering classes for quite some time. And they, through their expert witness, the Duke economist Peter Arcidiacono, has put forth quite compelling evidence showing that the percentage of Asians, Blacks, Hispanics, and Whites in each entering class over the last 20 years or so has remained quite stable. And in fact, when you look at those numbers, the years in which Asian Americans have alleged discrimination against Harvard, you see a surge in the percentage of Asians that are admitted. So overall, with Students for Fair Admissions, they're arguing there's discrimination against Asians. Harvard is balancing racially its entering classes in violation, again, of the Equal Protection Clause, and then also their use of affirmative action fails for scrutiny. All right. So um, what does Harvard say, uh, aside from the fact that Asian people do not have good personalities? <laughs> yeah, so they think through their personal rating that even though alumni, college counselors, all out of the four racial groups that they consider give Asians the highest ratings that According to their admissions officers, they're just unlikable, I guess. But in addition to that, Harvard... Have you, Harvard uh, have you, have you met Koreans? Very smart, but that's, that's all I'm <laughs> I'm just joking out there. Don't cancel me. I mean, I'm Indian and some Indians. Eh, I'm kidding, too. Um, so Harvard, of course, says their defense against the racial balancing is that we're not, in fact, racially balancing because, like, some years, you know... Asian American enrollment and admittance will fluctuate between like 17 and 20%. And that to them, those that difference of three percentage points is large enough to prove that they're not racially balancing. But their primary defense has to do with the strict scrutiny analysis. And this is important because if the court, the Supreme Court in the past, from Baki onward, had actually stuck to strict scrutiny, affirmative action would be no more in the United States. And if you act, if you look at the dissents from people like Alito, Clarence Thomas, they have said time and time again in Grutter, in Fisher 1 and 2, uh, that the court has misapplied strict scrutiny. So Harvard basically says, one, we have a compelling interest, which is the first prong of strict scrutiny in diversity, 
And we have shown, which they actually haven't, and I can talk about that if you in greater depth if you want. Uh, they don't actually, that they do have an interest in diversity and they've proven they have this interest. And two, and two that the only way in which they can achieve diversity is by discriminating on the basis of race. So that's their defense. If you actually look at the facts, it's, it, it's not a very strong defense. Well, I mean, I guess the issue here is, um, I mean, all right. So let's assume, so there's a law here. I mean, basically what you're saying is, you know, I mean, justices are going to find that this is unconstitutional because it doesn't, you know, pass strict scrutiny. They've kind of been letting it slide for a couple of generations for various reasons. Um, you know, in America, we are governed by the Constitution and the laws. And even if they're not popular, you know, sometimes stuff happens. So like in the 1960s, uh, the Warren Court changed, you know, rules relating to censorships and obscenity um, and banned prayer in schools. So whatever, they just said that this is not constitutional. And even if people are opposed to it, they just kind of went along with it because the Constitution is what it is. Um, I think from Harvard's perspective uh, and a lot of, you know, the American elite's perspective, Harvard educates the American ruling class. Um, like, I mean, it's just going to be like ludicrous for the American ruling class to be 15% Korean, right? I mean, <laughs> that. I mean, I'm just saying like, you know, what are the percentages here? Uh, I mean, let's just set aside the fact that, you know, maybe the percentage of African-Americans and, uh, you know, uh, Hispanic Americans. I'm not going to say Latinx because when I say that, I get some really angry messages from people with uh, Spanish surnames. So I'm just going to say Hispanic Americans. <laughs> um, but in any case, uh, okay, let's just set that aside. Uh, okay, let's do the thought experiment. What if Harvard is 40%? What if Harvard has Caltech's old demographics? Uh, is this going to be the American ruling class? I mean, next thing you know, we could have like multiple Indian American candidates in the Republic. Wait, never mind. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, you understand the question that I'm asking in terms of like Harvard is not Caltech. Um, it's not just pr producing professors. It's producing politicians. It's pr producing the thought leaders and the public intellectuals. And um, people are going to have a freak out if it doesn't look like America, right? I mean, this is this is like a serious concern. And if you follow the law in the way that you are presenting it right now um and i think that's fine because this is what the court's going to do let's be entirely candid um you know okay like how, how are they going to deal with this how are they going to get around it because i mean that's fundamentally what i'm getting at here how are they going to get around it what have you heard because we know what's going to happen legally but what people do uh <laughs> you know <laughs> the, chief, the chief justice the chief justice can um you know render the chief justice's decisions but let him enforce it right you know that's I mean, we'll see. Exactly. Exactly. So the so to two to two two points in your question. The first, what does this mean for sort of the elite of American society? Uh, people have been thinking about this. Actually, my colleague uh, Eric Kaufman had a piece in Tablet Magazine over the weekend where he tracked the decline in. Jewish Americans in elite institutions and sort of the rise of Asian Americans and kind of and his central argument was that people often equate Jewish Americans and Asian Americans as one and the same in the context of higher education because of the discriminatory quotas. But in fact, there are vast differences between these two groups of people in the United States and you're seeing the decline of one 
in sort of the elite circles like Harvard and these elite institutions, and then you're seeing the rise of others. So that that kind of is uh, a thought, you know, a thought like, what is this going to mean? Is it like you said, is America going to look like Caltech? I mean, Peter Arcidia Kono has found that if you remove the Asian American penalty at Harvard with respect to being discriminated against solely because you're Asian, the admit rate would increase by 19%. That That's significant. So that question of what does this mean for... You mean sorry. a double. It's not, that sounds like, it sounds like it would about almost double. Is it a twofold yes, increase? Is that exactly. what you're saying? Okay. Yes, so exactly. So it would go from like 20-ish to 40-ish, something like that. Yeah, in terms of like percentage points, yeah. And so if you remove the Asian penalty he, in his paper where he sort of compares Asian applicants relative to white applicants, that that, would, that is what would happen. The second point about what what's going to happen, like how are schools just going to, like Harvard, just going to accept this when their mantra is, we want our class to resemble real America. Um, they're not going to take it sitting down. Two two ways that have been one more so in the news lately. One that I think is going to come in the news. The first is the elimination of standardized tests, which have been an argument from uh, people who are pro affirmative action. In many cases, find themselves on the political left. Is that these tests discriminate against Black and Hispanic? applicants or individuals who are taking the test when you look at the outcomes of how the racial groups perform, Asian Americans perform the best, then you have whites followed by Hispanics and blacks. So a few days ago, Columbia officially announced that they were eliminating um, the SAT and ACT standardized test requirement. It's sort of, there's murmurs, Harvard did due to COVID that they're going to stick with that. Harvard is no longer requiring the LSAT or the MCAT. Um, Stanford, Princeton have followed suit. So one way in which schools are going to get around a potential strike down of affirmative action is eliminating SATs and ACTs, because then you can kind of focus on the softer, more holistic qualities of essays and whatnot. Another aspect that I think we're going to see more of is in supplemental essays, potential victimhood essays. Now, they're not going to openly say, have you ever in your life been discriminated on the basis of race? But they could phrase a question like, have you ever encountered adversity? And then if a student writes an essay explaining that because of his or her race, she or he has endured adversity, then that's a potential way to screen applicants. Yeah, so here's a question I was asking a friend of mine. Um, so, you know, these admissions committees at some of these universities, they're very, very, they're aligned uh, in their um, vision, in their values, uh, in their politics. Um, can we, can they just figure out a way to use code words? And I mean, you know, it, basically some of them are very stupid and they will actually email each other. I mean, I'm not saying in a pejorative way. I think they're literally stupid um, uh, because you have to be stupid to actually explicitly email um, on, you know, foyable servers. Like this has happened. Texas A&M did it. Like they, some, you know, low, I mean, honestly, I'm just gonna say low IQ administrators. They have to be like low IQ because they literally were like, we're going to hire, you know, people of this race, this sex, and this is what we're going to do. You can't just do that. You have to wink and nod and, you know, what you normally do is you have a search and then you just shut it down when you don't find the right people. Okay, let's be honest. This is what they do. Uh, but, you know, that's not – you can't get them on that. If you just send an email, you can. So they, they're not going to do that, okay? Uh, but if everyone just agrees, um, you know, we're looking for, you know, I don't know, men of good character, 
You know, you know what that means, you know? Uh, I mean, you can't read their heart, can you? I mean, I'm just wondering, like, can't they just do that? Yeah, they definitely can. And there's, I mean, with respect to Harvard's personal rating, they seem to already be doing that a little bit. The personal rating includes qualities such as compassion, kindness, whether one is courageous or not. And when you, and they okay, tend okay, to- Okay, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to see why Asians in particular are getting really low scores. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I believe that's what Harvard thinks. So I'm, sorry that I'm, making, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm making jokes about this, but uh, when I actually <laughs> like read, when I think about the implications, I just I can't stop but make jokes. Sorry, you know. Yeah, no, that's the only way to get through it. It's it's to make jokes. But ba- what Peter Arcidiacono and his research has already found is that with respect to other metrics that Harvard admissions officials consider, such as academics, high school teacher and guidance counselor recommendations. Um, extracurricular activities, those would correlate to a high personal rating. And it does for other racial groups, and it does most of all for African Americans. It does the least, it actually, it does the least with respect to Asian Americans, that even if Asian Americans score in the top academic decile, they receive on the other ratings, I believe it's out of a score of five or four, they receive the highest mark there. They're going to be perceived as having low likability, not being courageous, not being compassionate or kind. So these are code words that they're going to use more of after a potential strike down, but they're already doing it today. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that was my question. Um, I mean, so we were talking mostly about universities. Um, affirmative action obviously also applies uh, in the private sector. Um, and can you just talk about the legal framework there? Because, you know, obviously, you know, unless you're a federal contractor, there's not going to be federal money going into it. So, I mean, I, this is mostly about the equal protection clause, I think, I'm assuming then. Like, can you, can you talk about that outside of the educational context? Sure. So, I mean, affirmative action hiring is going on is going on everywhere too in the private sector as well. That's largely with respect to a lot of what's happening with the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, I'm not aware of if there are if there's any sort of uh, legal framework in the same sense that you know, like I mean, the diversity rationale. The thing is, a lot of what, what is applied in the context of higher education and federal contracting is in fact applied in the private sector as well. It's the diversity rationale. Its documents are much more hidden. Um, I, I, there have been stories of this sort, and I mean, this wouldn't surprise me at all. I actually think it's quite obvious this is happening, that these various large companies and organizations have a set number of various minority groups in mind that they want to hit in order to facilitate diversity. Uh, but I do think a lot of the same legal framework that is applied in the context of higher education applies uh, within the context of um, uh, the, the private sector and businesses as well, but it, it would perhaps be under title seven of the civil rights act. Okay. So if what, you know, if the students for fair admission, if they win, that's not going to affect that. That's an interesting question. It depends on how broadly the justices write the majority opinion. So this came up in oral arguments for the cases because uh, the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Preloger, she 
uh, she, she wasn't an advocate for either side, but she kind of spoke and represented the view of the United States through the Biden administration. And she made her entire argument on the basis of you need affirmative action to have diversity in the military. And the pushback that she got from a lot of the conservative justices was, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is specifically about private and public higher education. Do you are you asking us to and they kind of came back to her if we strike down affirmative action, then since you're asking us to apply it now to military hiring and, and the military, should we strike down affirmative action in that context? And she got super nervous and said, no, no, no. But the question of is this going to be limited to education is a really good one because it all depends on how tightly or broadly the court writes the opinion. OK, so that's not as of this recording, that is not certain. It could be a narrow ruling. It could be a broader ruling. And just to be clear, um, for those who are not aware, I mean, some of these ju uh, conservative justices, quote unquote, which call them conservative justices, they're they have a long history of not being very friendly to affirmative action. I know John Roberts, uh, the chief justice, is seen as a, a bit of um, evolving uh, to the left by some people, but when it comes to affirmative action, uh, he's been he has like a long track record of having strong opinions on this, right? Yes, he does. And actually, in an affirmative action-esque diversity case, I think it was 2007, called Parents Involved, in which they evaluated a sort of uh, racial quota type preference plan uh, in K-12 through uh, school context. He not they, they ultimately ruled that diversity rationale only applies with respect to education and higher education, not with respect to K through 12 education in the U.S. But the famous line he said was the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Yeah, so, I mean, if we have a, like, let, let, let's limit it to the, the, the very like high likelihood uh, case here again. Uh, of okay, affirmative action is is no longer licit in education. Um, you have uh, this massive boom with over the last really the last three years, but even earlier of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you know what that really means is you know certain types of diversity, uh, racial diversity, uh, sexual diversity, gender diversity, I guess you know, whatever you define that. And I think that's about it. Like some people talk about class, but they never really do anything about that from what I can see. Um, okay. So what happens to that? Yeah. I don't, I, that's, those people are still gonna be around, right? There's not gonna be mass layout. I mean, how are they going to pivot? Like, have you thought about this? Like have people talked about it? Yeah. So it's funny you bring that up because I recently watched an all hands on deck. What are we going to do if the court, like writes a very tight opinion saying no race considerations at all. And the individual that was running this meeting brought up the notion of reliance interests, which who typically when a court strike, when the court strikes down a precedent, one of the prongs it has to consider is the reliance interests. Like how are the people that have a stake in this situation and this law, this environment going to be adversely affected? And I thought it was hysterical that he brought that up because I mean, the DEI bureaucracy in the United States has become tens, 20 millions of dollars worth, you know, massive industry. And so a, firm, a, a, a tightly written opinion that strikes down the consideration of race 
not just in higher education admissions, but in hiring, et cetera, in public and private universities is going to adversely affect DEI. I don't see, I mean, there perhaps could be layoffs, but I think that what's going to happen is that these individuals and officials, administrators are going to find ways to, like we spoke about a moment ago, just get get around that decision. I don't see that this, I don't see this one court decision completely dismantling the DEI bureaucracy, even though I would like that to happen. (laughs) So, you know, here's a question. Um, So, you know, I'm hearing, you know, rumors. I mean, I haven't followed up on myself of, uh, you know, uh, just like a lot of volatility in racial identification, self-ID. So we have these diversity metrics. uh, And I mean, could people just, I mean, there are a few cases where I think people have been caught, like, obviously lying. Like, they said they were Native American, but it was just, like, a straight-out lie. And like some, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, she has her job. You know, there's actually other professors. There's another professor who was also, like, much more, she was actually a Native American scholar, but she turned out she was a liar. Like, literally, she was lying about it, and her sister also lied about it. There's like a whole article, I think it's in New Yorker about it, but she, she still has tenure, so she still has her job. I mean, consequences are social, really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, you know, we have more and more people of mixed backgrounds and all these other things going on. And, um, okay, I'm just going to say, I, I don't, I think I can say this. I'm, I'm going to be like a little generic here just so that, you know, I can protect the innocent. But, uh, you know, um, there are cases... Uh, I I've been told that there are some elite uh, I'm going to say it's law schools uh, where they actually do investigate uh, backgrounds. Uh, they don't just take your word for it because, uh, you know, they started seeing way too many Native Americans applying. Um, so in any case, uh, so that, that does happen. But I guess my question here is, OK, we have a situation where affirmative action um, is uh, self ID. And like, you know, what have you seen in terms of the distortions and, you know, I mean, I think the most famous case, the, the most obvious cases that um, I always hear about are, okay, so you need an X amount of black people, right? And, you know, for the, for the DEI, like, you know, or for, for the administrators, black is black. And it turns out they're mostly, you know, in certain, you know, areas, they're mostly Afri- the children of African immigrants, African Amer- immigrants, or the children of West Indian immigrants, or West Indian immigrants, and there's not that many American descendants of slaves, like say like, you know, 25% or something like that sometimes. And um, so then obviously that causes like a massive, you know, Sturm and Drang, you know, there, these sorts of things are, just, there's a lot of cases of this. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in your studies uh, of these sorts of, let's call it identity arbitrage? Sure. So the New York Times had an essay they wrote in 2004, and I'm surprised it's still up, looking into this exact question. It's titled something like, who actually, like, Black students that are Harvard, but who actually are they? And what the this uh, piece from 04 found was that two-thirds of the Black students at Harvard are either the children of, Af- or the children of African or West Indian immigrants, uh, or they themselves are immigrants and only one third had 
all four grandparents born in the in the United States, which is correlated to highly with being uh, the descendant of a slave. And so you have two thirds of students at black students at Harvard that are immigrants or the children of immigrants. And then you only have one third that is African-American in the sense of a descendant of a slave. And so in that sense, if the original purpose, which it was the original purpose of affirmative action was not to achieve greater student diversity, but it was to remedy societal discrimination first against African-Americans due to slavery and Jim Crow, and then expanded to other racial minority groups. So if the original purpose, and and many advocates of affirmative action, like Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted this the day after the Supreme Court decided they were going to hear the students for fair admissions case, which is, if the court overturns the diversity rationale, we need to go back to affirmative action as it was originally intended. Well, even affirmative action as originally intended has led to middle class and upper income Blacks in the United States, the children of immigrants or immigrants receiving the preferential treatment as opposed to low income uh, African-Americans or the descendants of slaves. So there is distortion definitely in that way. Yeah, um, I'm going to tell this story because, well, if you're super obsessive, you could identify this person, I'm sure. But I have an acquaintance in graduate school. Um, His uh, all of his grandparents were. German and but his parents were born and raised in the Dominican Republic and he grew up in a Spanish language household so he has a fellowship for uh, uh, people of Latin American background and there was a lot of people of Latin American background who were not happy he had that fellowship just because he was 100% German and he looked it so it was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm laughing it's, it's, it's kind of a laugh but it's also absurd right so um, I guess you know part of the issue and I'm probing here is there's a lot of, um, you know, absurdity, absurdities, distortions, and just unintended consequences uh, of our current regime due to uh, the diversity rationale that you were just talking about, which is, as you said, uh, kind of an ad hoc compromise, right? Yes. And you actually see this like the being most abused on the side of admissions officials doing the abusing with respect to applicants that are categorized as quote Asian American which I mean the racial category is in many ways I don't necessarily want to say meaningless but it's quite superficial and so for example when you disaggregate the larger Asian American category students that are penalized the most in elite college admissions are tend to be Chinese American and Indian American applicants and then if you are from a perceived underrepresented Asian origin groups as as Vietnamese Americans, you do in fact receive an admissions tip in a manner not exactly like, but similar to a Black or Hispanic applicant. The issue with this, and I mean, of course, scholars on the right have done a lot of work on this, but a lot of scholars on the left back in the 1980s, like William Julius Wilson brought this out, which is that affirmative action programs that are based solely around race, as opposed to say class, are not actually helping those who are most marginalized in society. And in one of the amicus briefs that was filed in support of students for fair admission suing Harvard, it was from two groups, uh, Asian American organizations, and they made the point that low-income Chinese American students are often negatively impacted by affirmative action because they're perceived as being overrepresented and an elite Asian origin group in the United States when that's not necessarily true. 
Yeah, that's fair. I, I will say, uh, let's just be entirely candid about some of what's going on here, though, is, you know, I know this This is true in the case of Koreans. Uh, you know, English language uh, education is not as advanced as in South Korea as you might think. And uh, there are a lot of people with high educational qualifications that came to the United States and, you know, they run small businesses, you know, and they're working class and, you know, their kids are raised that way. And then they go to MIT and it's like, oh, well, you know, great success. But I mean, honestly, uh, if you look at their lineage, you will see that, you know, these are people with, you know, let's just say high human capital. They have a history of multi-generational yes. achievement. So I just want to be candid about that. Like, I think that is true about a lot of Asian Americans, but Asian Americans, a lot of them do have a, you know, life history coming to the United States, you know getting some education or, you know, in the process of getting an education. So maybe they are raised in a lower income household, but they do have, uh, you know, often considerably, you know, high human capital. And that, that's not always true uh, if you look at the family history, but it's quite often true. And let's just be, you know, honest about that. In my opinion, I think it, that has to be something that needs to be brought up. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with that. I think what the issue and, and different organizations, like one organization that is quite anti-affirmative action and, and has been very vocal in filing amicus briefs and sort of being and working along with students for fair admissions is the Asian American Coalition for Education. And they're a coalition of 368 Asian American small businesses, parents, uh, just student groups, small, etc. And they've made the they've made that point that while there is, you know, to your point about Asian Americans, regardless of sort of class status, having this sort of higher human capital, a lot of that, you know, the sort of uh, the, the selective immigration thesis and, and, and that whole notion, it being true, a lot of these admissions officials um, in documents that have been disclosed during the trial and whatever sort of assume that all that all sort that all members of various ethnic groups and Asian Americans writ large have this certain level of um, yeah. maybe economic advantage. I would say that that not that's not necessarily materially true. Uh, but yeah, definitely there's like sort of those selection effects, and obviously culture plays a role in all of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you were talking earlier, uh, which is it's a well known thing. You were you were talking earlier about you know the overrepresentation of African immigrants, children of African immigrants, West Indians, et cetera. I mean, you know, with Asian Americans, you, of course, like the most famous group is the Hmong, uh, which Asian left-wing Asian American activists love the Hmong uh, because uh, they were poor. Um, and, you know, there was issues with violence and assimilation uh, just for the context for the, uh, you know, uh, people that, you know, guys that went to Vietnam know this and the people from Southeast Asia know this. The Hmong are very different than the lowland Lao and they were actually not integrated into the Buddhist civilization of the lowland Lao. So uh, they're, you know, might use the word backward, but they were slash and burn, uh, you know, farmers in the uplands. And so when they came to the United States, it, there was, I mean, these are people that come from a non-state society, uh, a tribal society. And, you know, there were cases of like apartment complexes burning down in California uh, because they started a fire in the middle of their living room. Okay, and so this is where they were in the 1970s and 1980s. There were a lot of problems, very high fertility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you look at the statistics now, they're actually doing okay. They're not, you know, super rich or anything like that, but they're converging to the American medium. So you know, um, Asian American activists are really focusing on the Bhutanese right now. So you know, thank God they're here uh, because they have some statistics that are very useful. Um, you know, my point is that you know, I don't want to. Uh, 
you can slice and dice these things. And, you know, what I would say just like editorializing is when you start to get into this game, it's like a never ending pit of uh, complexity. And, yeah. um, you know, really, they're not going to uh, they're not it's, 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 a, it's a race they can't really win. But, you know, they're trying to do it. Um, I guess, you know, the question that that I'm just wondering about, though, is. Um, the American elite, uh, let's say in universities, um, they are uniformly against. So there are Asian American groups that are against students for fair admissions. Uh, most of the elite, I mean, you know, standard Asian American NGOs are against it. I think didn't um, didn't the Anti Defamation League come in on the side of Harvard? Yes, all these all these sort of. You know, yeah, all these org larger organizations and nonprofits are on the side of Harvard and UNC. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the professional managerial class uh, is against this. Uh, they have a system that they control and then it works. Okay, uh, are they actually going to follow the law? I mean, I guess like, just straight up, I'm just asking, is there going to be massive resistance? I'm trying to get a sense of what people are anticipating and what your intuition is as someone that studies this topic. Sure. I do think there is going to be massive resistance from corporations, from the government, from public and private universities. And that's why I think that the strike down of affirmative action in June will be a great first step. But I think it's going to take years and years and years of individual lawsuits for and, and like potential Department of Justice investigations, etc. for this policy to actually be dismantled like it's not gonna there are a lot of people that are and, and even after hearing the initial oral arguments back in october i was excited because you know they were five hours long and the harvard and unc attorneys were for once forced to go on the defensive with questions from like clarence thomas and alito and so there was that initial moment of oh this is great affirmative action is going to be no more but when you see all of the top schools in the United States at the same time getting rid of the LSAT, the MCAT, the SAT, the ACT. When you see these educational consulting companies running seminars for admissions officials at the top schools saying, create sort of a screening victimhood essay, eliminate standardized testing, tell high schools to no longer report AP enrollment and AP scores. These are all covert ways that the elites in public and private universities are going to come together to resist the decision. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I use the term massive resistance. Uh, I just realized, you know, there's gonna be non-Americans that are just gonna think that's a generic term. That's not a generic term. Uh, I'm alluding here to Brown versus board of education um, yes. and the reaction in the South when it came to desegregation. So that was, I think Brown versus board of education was 54. Yes, there was Brown 1 and Brown 2. So 54 was uh, when the initial sort of strike down of segregation, the overturning of separate but equal, and then 55 was sort of the decision where the court provided a bit more guidance on how, how these various districts could proceed um, and who was in charge of that, um, state and local judges. And also the second part contained the infamous phrase, with all deliberate speed, uh, which basically allowed a lot of these Southern school districts, et cetera, to drag their feet for years and years. And I think your point equating the two, this is exactly what's going to happen unless the court writes the tightest opinion it could, which frankly, I, I don't necessarily see happening. Um, 
mostly because, I mean, they, they can't anticipate all the potential ways that admissions officials and schools are going to try to get around the law. The, uh, so, so I do think it's going to be the same sort of all deliberate speed situation. And it's going to take years and years of lawsuits to actually chip away at affirmative action. Yeah. So um, from what I remember, uh, the de jure, like the legal, I mean, I mean, basically segregation persisted in much of the South, not all of the South. Some of it actually switched really quickly um, into the late 60s. And then some sorts of de facto segregation persisted deep into the 70s. And then there was an interlude where there was relatively less segregation. And now there's actually been resegregation um, statistically. And that's for you know sociological reasons and outside the purview of, of this discussion. So that's the historical arc of that uh, particular legal regime. Honestly, um, there were a lot of people in the Southern elite that were not totally happy with segregation. There are business reasons, uh, you know, like duplication of services and all this stuff. Some of the some of you guys who have like, you know, more libertarian economic backgrounds are well aware that uh, a lot of uh, public accommodations, uh, you know, trolley services and whatnot were actually quite resistant because it made business a little harder, you know, it cost them some money. Uh, so. I think um, if I had to guess, this is actually going to be harder uh, because more unanimity across the whole elite class um, than there was in the South, to be honest. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, earlier when I mentioned reliance interests, you have millions and millions of dollars invested in the system of not they wouldn't necessarily say affirmative action, though it is that policy, but the notion, but the diversity rationale that has then spurred off into the diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI system. So sort of all the elites have understood this and they view, actually, I, in another sort of uh, training seminar that I watched, the education consultant equated the complete strike down of any consideration of race in any way, even even holistically, if the court were to do that to Armageddon. So that's how they're that's how they're viewing these strike down. Like they all sort of agree that if the court said you can't even include race as a factor of a factor of a factor in some way, it's going to be like Armageddon, basically. All right. So uh you know uh Oh, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be dodging. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you have an op-ed in the uh, New York Times uh, last fall. Um, you said there's better ways to make campuses diverse. So, uh, you know, um, you know, you know like, show us the way. Like, you know, let, let, let's hear your vision. Sure. So I, the main point I made in that op-ed is that First, the first part is that when Justice Powell established the diversity rationale, he said in his plurality opinion in Baki explicitly, I don't mean just race. He described diversity writ large. And when he explained it, he talked about, you know, the student from Idaho, the student of from a single parent household, a pianist, a football player, etc. Uh, that's obviously not how diversity is construed today. And as a result, by only focusing on diversity in terms of race and ethnicity, there are many other forms of diversity that are missing in higher education, particularly at the elite schools. One is 
socioeconomic diversity, diversity of class, uh, which is uh, something, which is a solution that I kind of propose in that op-ed, which is if you're, if you want to maintain the diversity rationale and provide some sort of admissions tip, the way to do that is through a race neutral alternative in the form of, for example, a socioeconomic tip. And this is actually what students for fair admissions put forth in their legal argument. They didn't say, you know, only merit-based admissions. They said if Harvard tried to increase socioeconomic diversity, that in turn, they found, would lead to an increase in combined Black and Hispanic enrollment at Harvard. It would lead to an increase in Asian American enrollment at Harvard. It would lead to a decrease in white enrollment and so and class diversity at Harvard would skyrocket. Currently, uh, the, currently about the, the, the median household income of a student at Harvard is about $169,000. So there's not a lot of socioeconomic diversity going there. So that's one way to do it. Um, and Justice Alito actually said this in his dissent in the Fisher case, which is that the University of Texas at Austin had more socioeconomic diversity and racial diversity when they did not have affirmative action, as opposed to when they did. So using a race neutral alternative in the form of an admissions tip based on class as opposed to race could actually lead to greater diversity in the terms of not just racial and ethnic, but also class, um, which is severely lacking at these top schools. Yeah, uh, I think New York Times had a, uh, a, you know, survey or they had an analysis. So like, you know, Colgate was actually really bad. Uh, you know, they're, they're yeah. you know, let's, let's call them like, uh, you know, somewhat obscure rich kid schools, Hamilton, Colgate, Colorado College. Uh, no offense to my friend who might be listening who went to Colorado College. But, you know, there are these, there are these private schools. They're great schools, but um, they don't have the names of Harvard or Yale. But uh, basically, uh, you know, that's where like lower upper class, upper, upper middle class ki- people uh, go, send their kids to have fun for four years, uh, you know, major in business or whatever, before taking over this car dealership or something. Um, and so and th- then you have Harvard. Um, I have to say, um, I've written about this multiple times on my blog, maybe I'll post a link to it. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Harvard, because that's the case. And Harvard's important, because Harvard is where the American elite, especially the liberal, uh, and the Democratic Party elite, um, the McKinsey elite, um, Goldman Sachs elite, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about, um, is formed, right? Um, these are the people that will write for the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker. Um, it's important. Uh, you can go to University of Michigan, get a degree in engineering, and have a really great life as um, you know, senior manager eventually at Ford or wherever, but you're not going to be shaping the public discourse. Like, If you want to shape the public discourse, if you want to be a leader, uh, you'd go to Harvard. Right. If you, uh, if you want to be um, the head of the NIH, maybe go to MIT. But uh, I just want to be clear for non-Americans what the stakes here are and why people care. And I also want to be clear. Um, let's just make it explicit and transparent of what Harvard's about. It's not about academics. It's not about merit. The people who go to Harvard are all smart. Um, they used to have really high test scores. Maybe in the future they won't because we won't know. But the point is, yes, they are all scholarly, but they're not selected from the top scholars of the country. There's a minority of them that are selected because, like Jared Kushner, their parent is really rich. It's a very small minority, but everybody knows who these people are. And if you ever talk to people that went to Harvard, you know exactly like what category they're in because they do not sound like they should have gone to Harvard. 
You know, let's just be honest about that. Like, they're just dumb compared to the other Harvard students, okay? So we got that category. Uh, we have a lot of legacies that are coming in through athletics. They tend to be white. They play lacrosse or, you know, they do some swimming or whatever. Okay, so, like, th there are those people. Then you have the Asians and, you know, the other minorities. Uh, they tend to have less legacy, although, you know, as the generations go on, they'll have more of that. Um, so, you know, you have this hybrid student body and what they're trying to do is they're trying to create the power elite and that power elite will eventually give them money and will give them prestige, uh, and will give them power. And so they're not just trying to educate students, uh, for the world. They're trying to maintain their institutional power in this country. So if Harvard is 40% Asian, um, that is a problem. Uh, because, you know, government in the United States is democratic and people do tend to vote for the people of their own ethnic, you know, background. That's just a fact. Um, it is very unlikely that 40 percent of the people in the House of Representatives will be Asian anytime soon. So that's just going to be a problem in terms of their racial demographics. And I'm just, you know, Harvard says they're about, you know, like I, I saw like Drew um uh, Gilp is it Gilpin? Was that the the former president's name before the or the current one of Harvard? So she said like ten years ago or something like Harvard's about inclusion. This is just a flat out lie. Harvard is about exclusion, yeah. like literally. Okay, yes. so like in the literal, like if an alien came down, they'd be like, wait, does that mean the opposite of what I think it means? So it's a flat out lie. Well, why does she get to lie? Because like you know she's you know president of Harvard, she gets to lie. Um, so they lie to your face and they tell you a certain thing. And you're just supposed to, like, smile and bear it because, you know, most powerful people, they went to Harvard, you know. Um, you know, Editor of the Atlantic went to Harvard. You know, New York Times the publisher went to Harvard. So they're not going to call the, the president of Harvard out. But that's a lie. It's not about inclusion. It's about exclusion. It's about creating power. It's about maintaining the power and maintaining uh, and perpetuating that power. And it's about also, like, keeping uh, the endowment large. And so if you see some internal statistics, not that, like, people have told me these sorts of things, but maybe they have, that there are different patterns of different ethnic groups of who gives money back uh, to Harvard uh, and these elite universities. So this is like some of what cannot be spoken of. Like, let's just be entirely honest. Um, you know, yeah, they do kind of care about diversity, but I mean, what they really care about is maintaining their status in American society. And if you make it um, based on, say, a standardized test, uh, they have no control. Um, they want to keep control, right? Um, and so that's the fundamental problem that I think is uh, – facing them right now. Uh, they have everything under control. I mean, I know what type of like, you know, mathematical models they're using in terms of like tuning the parameters. I mean, it's like with modern computers, it's trivial. Uh, you can ethnically balance so easily um, and like figure out like what bundle of characteristics and stuff like that. And I know that some of these universities use like, you know, interviews and all this other stuff, but, um, and they must have like a certain quota for the super rich that like, you know, the dad will, fund a building or something like that so i mean i think like that's that's not true right um apologize to the listeners and the viewers but i did wait for a while before i went off <laughs> um sorry <laughs> so, so, some of them complain if when i uh, express my views too much but i waited for a while um okay so you're doing your dissertation on affirmative action we've been talking for a while i think the listeners and viewers know um what is going to happen and they know the historical context uh what are you going to be doing um you know in policy if uh affirmative action is officially a thing of the past officially a lot of <laughs> so a lot of uh a lot of the work that i'm doing now to our earlier conversation has been kind of looking at 
anticipating the ways that the schools and, and different institutions are going to try to get around it. Um, other areas that I think that this is quite interesting to look at and what I think is going to be the next fight of this, because again, these cases are focusing on higher education. It's K through 12. So what I've been looking at as well is the move away from merit-based admissions at a lot of the exam schools that were originally founded um, as magnet schools, for example, at schools to help talented, gifted, low-income minorities in different urban centers throughout the United States. Um, and so I've been following that, and that's kind of the next area I'm looking for. Uh, you see the, the Fourth Circuit back in September heard uh, the uh, case for uh Thomas Jefferson High School uh, for Mathematics and Science, you know, the magnet school, uh, they actually came out with a holistic review process, getting rid of merit-based admissions. And it was quite clear from what was presented at trial at the district court that they had implemented this plan to specifically cut down um, Asian American students. I think it was that Asian, specifically Indians, made like 70% or something of the student body. And after this plan, it had gone down to 43 or something. And so this is happening, you know, Bill de Blasio tried to do this with Bronx Science and Stuyvesant in New York City. This happened with Boston Latin, Lowell High School in San Francisco. So a lot of what I'm looking at now is kind of the next iteration of this, which is uh, the merit-based uh, high schools and K through 12 stuff. Yeah, let's let's be clear about what you're alluding to here. So there are some of these schools in the United States, they're public schools, but they have a gated entrance exam. And that's basically all they use. And so when you use a dumb and blind, um, and I don't mean dumb and like, you know, stupid, I'm just saying like, you know, it's not very sophisticated, it's an exam. Um, and, you know, you can study for the exam and you do well, or you don't do well, and you get in based on the exam. I know Stuyvesant, um, you know, for a while it was like 75, like high 70s Asian. Um, you know, I even had a friend who went to start. He's he's Jewish American, but uh, all of his friends were Korean because he hung out with the Koreans. Like there's a whole, you know, subgroup in Stuyvesant of Koreans. So it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a different type of diversity. Um, I do think that this does point to like, you know, a lot of Asians, uh, a lot of Asian parents, like they actually are not going to be super happy if the school that their kids go to is mostly Asian because so for example, um, let's, let's talk about Harvard. Um, you know, I have friends that have gone there and I'm sure you have too. And, you know, I'm in the startup world. And one of the great things about Harvard is like really smart kids like Mark Zuckerberg from the upper middle class can meet the, the children of the captains of industry who aren't that smart, but have access to a lot of capital. And so there's that sort of synergy. And I think a lot of Asian Americans, uh, parents that are striving, you know, they want, um, their son to be on the crew team with the the last wasp at harvard you know um so i think uh let's be honest like there's other things going on like that um you know overturning the current system um i suspect it's gonna it's gonna cause a little bit of chaos and people are going to be retuning their expectations right and trying to figure out um how to optimize uh their individual outcomes you know depending on what they want to you know optimize Definitely. And what's interesting is when you read interviews from parents in places where these merit-based public schools are trying to move away from merit-based to just kind of like holistic admissions, lottery system, something like that. You talk to these Asian immigrant parents, uh, they say in these interviews 
the reason we want our kid to go to the school is precisely what you're saying, which is that it's a golden ticket to the upper echelon of American society. You know, you're going to meet certain types of people that are going to then help you get into a school like Harvard or Yale. You're going to meet other types of people. And then you're going to get this amazing, you know, white collar job. And they view the admission in ninth grade or eighth grade or whatever to one of these selective exam schools as the first step on the road to success in the United States. Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, um, just to, as we're concluding, um, you know, you know, my own personal perspective is I think, you know, I like transparency. I like openness. I like truth. I like honesty. You know, I think we're gonna have a more complicated discussion. Um, you know, I am, you know, kind of like a soulless nerd, so I would be okay with a test, you know, but um, I know most people, they like other things, they read fiction, you know, they're much more diverse in there. You know? I'm just, I'm just trying to be candid here in terms of like, you know, my preferences are, are, are not, um, you know, in the median. And so I understand that, but it, you know, it's, it's good to have a discussion that's predicated on uh, the truth and reality because, you know, we just, you know, earlier joked about, uh, Asians, Asian Americans having bad personalities. I'm like this is just, this is just farcical. Like everyone knows, you know, that Asian Americans have great personalities. I mean, like they can all play the violin, you know. No, just, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, it's just <laughs> we're not talking about reality. Uh, we're shadow boxing reality, and so I think, um, I think as we go forward. Uh, we should talk about what we want universities to be, what their roles are, the different types of universities, all of this, like, just like fakery. Uh, I, I would like it to be stripped away, partly because, you know, we as a country, um, you know, we're still the most powerful nation in the world. We probably will be for a while. But, you know, there's other countries out there, um, you know, some of them particularly in East Asia with 1.4 billion people um, that are making advances. And we do need our higher education and our universities to be great. And uh, we don't have, I think, uh, as much slack as we did you know, back when Baki was decided, to be honest. Um, you know, we need the best and the brightest uh, to be working hard so that uh, we don't get enslaved by <laughs> the People's Republic of China or the AI overlords. I don't know. Um, this is going to be an interesting couple of decades. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Um, so, uh, Renu, thank you for um, coming on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot from you um, in the next couple of years or decades, uh, depending on, I don't know, maybe you want to go to law school and become a lawyer. I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, everyone seems to want to go to law school today. But that's just, you know, After my the PhD, I'm all set. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, soon to be Dr. Mukherjee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I will talk to you later. Thank you for having me. This podcast for kids.